0: If we're going to have a visual component to a song, I'd much rather something that evokes it but doesn't literally follow the storyline. All that does, to my mind, is just insult the listener's intelligence, really. If you have to see the story, then that means I haven't told you the story well enough.
1: Welcome to This Next Song's About, a podcast to help you level up your songwriting craft for industry success. I am your host, Stevie Manns. Today, in the penultimate episode of the podcast, we are revisiting one of my favourite ever interviews with singer-songwriter Gretchen Peters. Now, Gretchen Peters has had an enormous amount of success as a mostly independent artist. Her songs have been cut by artists like George Jones, Etta James, George Strait, Trisha Yearwood, Martina McBride, Brian Adams... She has two Grammy nominations. She has a CMA for Best Song of the Year back in 1995. And at this point, I had seen her perform in concert in the UK several times before I moved to the US. And I was already a huge fan of hers. So when she agreed to do this interview, I was nervous and excited and just all of the things. But looking back, not only was it an honour, of course, to speak to Gretchen who is an incredibly acclaimed songwriter. But because I was such a big fan, I was so prepared. And I'm very proud of what transpired. There's a really lovely moment where we're talking about a song that she wrote. You'll hear that in the episode. It's called The Boy From Rye. And I said it sounded like the heart of the album, to which she replied that she'd said those exact same words on stage the night before. And I felt like I really got the message and that, you know what? Maybe I was good at this whole interviewing thing. I since, of course, have tanked various interviews after that. But this one, I really love listening to it again. And I hope you do too. And just for some extra context, this episode was recorded in November 2019. It is such a pleasure to talk to you. I've been a big fan of yours for a number of years. So this is a real pleasure for me. And I'm so excited to talk about one of your songs. Absolutely. I love the format. I
0: love focusing on one song. It's great.
1: Thank you. Uh, When I asked you which song you wanted to talk about today, you picked The Boy From Rye from your latest album, Dancing With The Beast. Yes. And I thought it was such an interesting choice. So firstly, I wanted to ask why you picked this song in particular.
0: This song felt, for me personally, when I was writing it, It felt important and big. I knew as soon as I had the idea for the song, I knew that I had things to say on the subject, but also that it would be really tricky. It's really a song about what happens in that moment for young girls in adolescence when they go from being the subject of their own lives to the object of their own lives. They start to realize that they are, as girls, on the cusp of being women, they become judged from the exterior, judged by their male counterparts and judged by other girls and by themselves, most of all. And it's a very tricky and I think really treacherous part of a girl's childhood and really interesting too. And I wanted to really explore a couple things, that idea plus the idea that girls are conditioned and it's a shock for me, it was at that age. Anyway, to realize that you're suddenly in competition with the people who were your best friends. Suddenly, there's this element of competition. And for a lot of us, that was a very uncomfortable thing. And ended up, I think for a lot of women, it ended up taking years and even sometimes decades to realize that women are our best allies in many cases. So there, there's just so many layers to it. And that's what I mean by it seemed very big, it was a very big idea. And I love those kind of songs, but I also know from experience that they're very tricky. And with this one, I just felt, oh, I really have to get this one right. And I feel like I did with this song. I felt a deep sense of satisfaction having written it because I felt like it captured that time in my life and lots of other women's lives when they are in that fragile in-between place when they start to realize that they maybe are not seen as being the captains of their own ship anymore.
1: I find it interesting, and I applaud you for the fact that you've done this album and you've largely focused it around women and women's experiences in the wake of 2017 and the Me Too movement. And I think the heart of your album is this song because you've gone almost to the moment that toxic masculinity becomes really apparent and impacts you. I've actually said the very words that you just said on stage Introducing this song,
0: I mean, I feel like there is always this point when I'm making an album, when I come out of this murky phase of where am I going? What does this all mean? The songs don't really hang together as a piece. What is the theme of this album? And then somehow, somewhere, a song will appear that says, okay, this is the heart. This is the center of this record and everything emanates from this.
1: And for me, this was that song. It's so delicately handled. And I hark back to Independence Day from the early 90s, and that in itself was a really interesting time. And it was a controversial song to release on country radio. And now we're in a different era where we can explore these themes with a bit more comfort. How do you feel that these songs are being received at this time?
0: It's a weird thing. There's certainly more freedom to say what we want and need to say, but there is, there's kind of a, a deafness a sort of cultural deafness against it. And this persists in things like women being called female authors or female singer-songwriters or female this or that. And this has been going on a long time, but it's almost as if we are ghettoized because we are automatically written off as having interest only to other females. So... I feel more freedom to talk about what it is like to be a girl and to be a woman in my songs, but I've always pushed for that. I mean, Independence Day is a great example of a song that I wrote feeling absolutely positive that no one would ever record it and it would never see the light of day. I just wrote it because I had it inside me and I wanted to get it out.
2: She tried to pretend he wasn't drinking again But daddy left the proof on her cheek
0: And now, fast forward 25 years, I have the wherewithal to release any song I want on my own label, on my own record, but there is a much, much higher wall that women have to scale to even get their voices heard now. And one of the proofs of that is the fact that when my first record came out in 1996, I was hearing things from when I went on my radio tour, my label sent me out on a radio tour, I was hearing, we can only play one woman an hour on our station. And I thought that was bad. And I thought that maybe we had made some progress in 25 years. But now it's worse, I think. Uh, Certainly for young female artists on country radio, it's worse. So we really haven't gone forward. We've gone backward. I think that the effect is, sure, say whatever you want to say. We have the internet. We have, there are all kinds of platforms. But the real question is, who's listening? And how can you be heard? And is there a level playing field for those things like radio and press print all of that and I don't think that there is and I think that women still are relegated to this corner of women's art
1: and that is something I hope I live to see change and this album is a real testament to that I think you're absolutely right it's worse for women now and I think also the beauty standard is a lot worse for women now
0: You know, when I think about an album like Dancing with the Beast, the biggest compliment I ever get is when men come up to me and say, I found so much to identify with and empathize with in this album. I just feel like, glory, hallelujah, you're a human being. I've grown up, started reading when I was four years old, and I identified with tons of male characters. I identified with Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath. I read so many books that were based around male characters and love them, and also female characters. It never occurred to me that I would only empathize or identify with one gender. And I think it's ridiculous, obviously, on its face to say that men aren't interested in women's stories because I see men in my audience, lots of them. But this is just something that's overhanging our patriarchal culture, this idea that we really have to get rid of, because unless we present art about women to everyone and tell boys it's cool to read books about girls when they're little kids, then we're never, ever going to get past this.
1: Yeah, it's that idea of toxic masculinity, the patriarchy, and having men embrace femininity and feminine energy that is a part of them and that it's not something that is weak, that it's actually a strength, that it's a power. For them to understand. And a lot of men do, as you say, who come to your shows and who get it and who are already on board with that message. It's wonderful that you have taken that to an album and really embraced that that movement through your art. I love the women. I love the
0: characters performing that album every night. I feel like I'm surrounded by sisters. Most of my characters that I write, I end up growing to love because they make themselves known to me and they appear and talk and they become real but especially with this album i feel like i'm surrounded by a really great group of sisters
1: every night let's take a listen to the boy from rye and then we can chat about more of your career
2: from right came down on the train with his parents and his sister where the summer lawns roll down to the sea and the air is softer than a whisper Girls from school in our summer tan suddenly self-conscious and uncertain. All in a row, we're
1: the instrumentation on that. You definitely get that feel that we are looking back in time just from the instrumentation. I know that passing of time ties into the theme of the album. I really have to
0: give a lot of credit to my husband, Barry Walsh, for that incredibly evocative piano on that track. Barry and I have been playing music together for 29 years this year. And I think that the reason that I gravitated towards his playing all that time ago is because he quite obviously listen to the lyrics. Not every musician does that. There are many brilliant musicians that play wonderfully, but don't necessarily clue into the lyrics. And he really did. And that
1: piano part, it moves me every time I hear it. I've seen you perform with Barry a number of times and I think I've only ever seen you perform when you've been married, but that there's such a connection musically on stage as well. We've
0: only been married nine years, but we've been playing together 29 years. And I always, people say, well, you just seem to be joined at the hip. Like you seem to have some kind of like psychic groove that you're in musically. And I always say music was our first language for 20 years. So... There's, it's no big surprise. So, you're from New York and you moved to Boulder and then on to Nashville. I was from Westchester County, New York, and I lived there until I was 13. And eventually, my mom took me and we moved to Boulder, Colorado, which was a complete change of pace. But Boulder in the 70s had a remarkable music scene. Just to watch that to grow up from pretty much my mid-teens on, I was going out to see shows and I saw a lot of different artists. Even my mom, when I was way too young to get into clubs and bars, would take me out because she knew how important it was to me. She sounds like a mother that the truant officer would go after. <laughs> she took me to bars when I was 13,
1: but she just knew how important the music was to me. So she'd take me to see anybody I wanted to see. And when you were 19, that I read that was what launched your career in that you won a song contest that wasn't really a song contest on the local radio. Yeah, it wasn't meant to be a
0: song contest. This a radio station that asked all the local musicians, of which there were hundreds, to just send in their tapes and they were just going to have a whole weekend of playing nothing but local music. And I... Just recorded something in my friend's basement, thinking, oh, they'll never play it on the radio. And it won the weekend. It really wasn't a contest, but then they decided, hell, why not? But all of a sudden, I had built-in gigs. I had offers to play at clubs around town. And I got a band together, and it just enabled me to do all the things I wanted to do. And that was it for me. I was dabbling at going to college, but I lasted a year, and I just I said, this is what I want to do.
1: That's incredible. I mean, to think that local radio DJs would do that, I think now it's almost unheard of. The idea that unknown music is a turnoff for people who are listening.
0: It's a real testament to how Boulder, what a great town it was at that moment, because live music was so supported there and people followed their favorite bands around and everybody. it was There was a lot of enthusiasm for it. It was a very fertile and healthy musical environment to grow
1: up in. When you moved to Nashville, you got a publishing deal within three months of moving there. I did. I had made two
0: trips before I moved. I took a week each time and slept on a friend's couch and just took my tapes around. They were tapes back then. (laughs) And so I'd made a couple inroads, but I found one publisher that was such a talent to be someone who can recognize That someone is going to write a great song, but they haven't yet, because I certainly hadn't. I certainly was just figuring it all out, but he heard something in me, and I don't know what, and signed me to a publishing deal within three months of my arriving here. So I was, at that point, a professional songwriter, which is really thrilling and exciting and also terrifying because suddenly I was receiving a check, which meant, oh God, this is real. I actually have to produce songs, but it was mostly thrilling.
1: In terms of the way that you were writing it before you got the publishing deal and then after when you got the publishing deal, when you are published and you become a songwriter, a lot of people don't necessarily understand. That technically, it's a nine to five. You will go in, you'll have a co-writing session, or you'll have a writing session and be expected to come out with songs. Was that how you had been working up until that point? No, not at all. I was sitting on
0: my bed writing songs all by myself. And when I got the publishing deal, I tried going into the publishing company every day, and I tried co-writing, and I tried writing what I was hearing on the radio, and none of it worked. And I was still sneaking out these little songs that I'd write all by myself in my bedroom, sitting on my bed, but I thought if they're paying me to write songs, I better try to come up with something like what I'm hearing on the radio. And finally, my publisher, who was a very wise and intuitive and, like I said, talented at what he did. He just took me aside and he said, stop all this nonsense. If co-writing doesn't work for you, stop co-writing. You don't have to come in every day. If what helps you to write a song is getting in your car and driving to Florida, go do that. All I want from you is songs. And I like the ones right now that you're writing by yourself better than the ones that you're co-writing. Co-writing for me was always excruciating. I don't... (laughs) do much of it now. I don't really like it. And I've had to come to grips with the fact that in a co-writing town, I'm just a solo writer, pretty much, with a few exceptions. But he saw that in me. He saw that I was struggling with it. And I really wonder where I would be now if he hadn't said, look, it's okay to just go be yourself. Because I started having success after he told me that I could do that. I started writing more of those songs by myself. I started, I I set up my little songwriting office on my bed in my bedroom instead of feeling like I had to go to a cubicle or a publishing company and sit there all day. And that's really when things started happening for me. And your first song was cut by George Jones? George Jones. Talk about a way to start. There's nowhere to go but down. Well, then you had George (laughs) Strait. Yeah. The George Jones song was my first cut, but it was not a single. The George Strait song, which I think was cut maybe a year later, went straight to number one, which at that point, all of George Strait's songs went to number one. But it was was quite a ride. And I thought, oh, if you get a single, it goes to number one. That's not true, which I learned (laughs) subsequently. But it was quite a ride, that first one.
1: Yeah, I bet. So you you mentioned earlier that you're a big movie fan and that's how you visualize songs. What caused you to come to that realization that's how you like to think of characters and how you like to write your songs? Well, I've always been a huge
0: movie fan. I get a lot of creative juice from movies, books as well, but I love the visual arts. I love the visual nature of movies. And I tell my songwriting students this all the time. You have to think of your song as a movie. What does it look like where you are? Tell me what the scenery looks like. Tell me what's going on and I just I think I did that instinctually, but I think upon reflection, I realize that my songs are very visual. I think of them as little movies, and I think about things like where the lens of the camera is in the song at any given moment. Is it on a very small detail, or is it at some other point in the song it might be panned out to a really big picture, and it moves constantly. And I think thinking of songs in that way, I think that's part of what makes them magical for people because we all create our pictures inside of our heads when we listen to our favorite songs. I just do it while I'm writing them. I think that's one of the reasons I never really took to music videos very much is because I love I love the way a song gives me my own kind of movie that plays in my head.
1: Mm -hmm. You have a few lyric videos, and I feel like for some of the songs that you have those for, those are some of the more poignant songs where you can allow somebody to have their own vision.
0: I love lyric videos. First of all, I'm borderline obsessive on words anyway, so the idea that I could visually look at the words while they're going by is just my idea of heaven. I guess my real pet peeve about videos in general is when they're too literal. If we're going to have a visual component to a song, I'd much rather see something that Evokes it, but doesn't literally follow the storyline.
1: I know that one that you had, I think, was one that you co wrote with, I think it might have been Patricia Berg, arguing with ghosts. That was a very interesting video. And to your point, I think you allowed the visual to help evoke the emotion, but you don't exactly tell the story within that. I get lost in my hometown
2: since they tore the driving down. I find myself all Turn I get lost in my
0: own town. Exactly. It's one of my favorites that I've ever made, and it's very evocative, and the characters are really compelling in the video, but it's not repeating the action of the song. All that does, to my mind, is just insult the listener's intelligence, really. If you have to see the story, then that means I haven't told you the story well enough.
1: And in terms of you telling the story and the songwriting, and you've mentioned as well that the devil's in the detail in terms of the lyrics and setting up the arc of the story within three to five minutes. And yet you still manage to kind of get those really subtle details that paint that picture very quickly. And I've seen it in a lot of the songs that you've written, like Circus Girl and Nobody's Girl and Disappearing Act and all of them. Is that something that you teach your students as well? It is. And I think the thing that is easy to
0: miss is that the details are actually shorthand. Putting the details in the songs actually allows you to take up less time. Telling detail about a character gives you all the information that you need about who they are. The example that I always use with my students is when we're talking about detail is the Chris Christopherson song, Sunday Morning Coming Down. I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head that didn't hurt.
2: No to my head that didn't hurt. the beer I
0: had for breakfast, had for breakfast was bad. wasn't bad, so I had so one, I had more, for one more
2: for dessert.
0: I mean, how much do you know about this guy <laughs> in two lines? And that's the thing. I think people think oh, if I focus on the details, I won't be able to get my whole story in. But Harry Christopherson's just on a whole character sketch in two lines. So details are actually the key to that very short form that is the popular song.
1: There's one other writer I'm such a fan of at the moment, Brandy Clark. She's able to do that as well. And, and the humor that she manages to tie into it, as well as bringing in so much detail in a very short space of time, is phenomenal to me.
2: When you broke my heart
0: She's a great writer. She's she's a classically great songwriter. She would have been a great songwriter and t- people would have taken notice of her in Nashville 30 years ago or 50 years ago or she's timeless. Her approach to writing. I actually asked when I was inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame, I asked Brandy to induct me to sing, not to induct me, but to sing my songs. It was Trisha Yearwood and Brandy Clark, because Brandy, I identified with her in a way. She Here was a young, up-and-coming songwriter that I recognized a little
1: bit of myself in. No, for sure. She's incredible. And as you say, you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2014. Rodney Crowell introduced you. Yes,
0: it was it was incredible. Rodney actually presided over two very important events in my life. He inducted me into the Hall of Fame, but he also married my husband and me very 2010. Awesome. So I, when the Songwriting Hall of Fame thing came up, I thought Rodney did a great job at the wedding. Maybe he could officiate at this too. And it was lovely to have him because he has been one of my heroes for a long time.
1: One thing I also wanted to ask you, so you're an independent artist. I think there was a one album I believe that you released on a major label, but I think it's incredible that you've had so much success and you're owning your distribution as an independent artist. I think in this climate, it's so difficult to do that. How has your career felt different doing it by yourself versus the desire that a lot of people have to get onto a major label?
0: I didn't enjoy being on a major label. I realized. That there were a lot of assumptions that I had made about the music that I made for them that were not true. I didn't really realize that I didn't own it, that I had no control over it. I was naive, of course, but I also assumed that wouldn't really matter to me. And then when the record doesn't work and the label goes south, then you realize how much it really does matter. When you realize things like, wait a minute, I can't even press up some copies of this and sell it on the road, like it's just out of print forever. This was, of course, long before the days of streaming. Things like that really opened my eyes. I was a really early adapter. I went independent in the year 2000, which was pretty early because I just didn't ever want to be in the position where I couldn't decide what happened with my music, where I couldn't. I just wanted to own it. I felt like the only proper thing is for an artist to own their own work. License it, sure. Sign distribution deals, but owning the master's is really important to me. And I won't lie, it's a lot of work and I've had to really educate myself on s- so many different subjects that I wish I wasn't so educated on. <laughs> but but the payoff is I operate under my own steam. I do what I want to do. I make the records. I want to make. Nobody's there to tell me you can't put that out or you can't say that or any of that. And I'm able to find team members that I want to work with. Every album release takes a pretty big team, but I can pick and choose those people. It's not a record label who says, this is the radio promoter you're working with. This is the publicist you're working with. I get to do that. And there's no one who cares as much about your music as you do. And that feels like the only way to go for me. It is exhausting and you have to be super organized, I will say. That is the downside.
1: And you have such a great fan base, obviously, in the States and the UK as well. I am so grateful, especially for my UK fan
0: base. I started touring early and often there when my first record came out and it didn't do well over on this side of the Atlantic. A friend of mine, actually, who was playing in Nancy Griffith's band said, you should go to the UK. They'll get you. They'll understand. They'll love you. And I went over and did a very small tour. I think four dates or something, and playing for forty people, maybe. And fast forward twenty something years, and we're playing the last London show we did. There were a thousand people there, and it's just been—it's been a that's a long time, on the one hand, and a lot of work and a lot of tours. But on the other hand, I pinch myself sometimes, and I feel this bond with that audience. They, there's just something about the way that they took to me and the way that I took to them that really, it's so meaningful to me because really, frankly, there were a lot of years when I wasn't doing any touring in the States and I just couldn't get a foothold. So having that audience over there really meant the world to me.
1: And I love there's a the song that you, the England blues.
0: Yeah.
1: I yeah that's that kind song. of my love song to them. <laughs> oh, it's fun and it's a great song as well, but love that you obviously, you really care about it. And I think that comes through with that song.
2: God save the Queen Queen and- can't do nothing about you and me. got
0: my hand on the wheel I'm driving left I, I absolutely do. I mean we have a lot of friends over there over the, the course of all these years and uh, I'm just I really feel grateful to them for the support and every time I go back I think, Thank God you guys are here because I would have probably stopped recording sometime in the mid 2000s if this hadn't been here for me. Well, and what a travesty that would have been. I certainly am glad that I got the chance to make the last, especially the last three albums that I've made. because oh. I'm proud of those three. I'm proud of yeah. all of them, but I'm really proud of those three.
1: They're all great, as I say. I've been a fan for a number of years. I was also interested to hear that, as we've mentioned, that you teach songwriting classes and you have students. And what was it that kind of led you to do that? And how has that experience been for you as a songwriter to give back, but also learn from the students? I was kicking and screaming into that.
0: I didn't really want to do it. I didn't really believe you could teach songwriting. And I actually still don't exactly believe you can teach anyone to write a song but I do believe you can really illuminate the process for people who are writers and the big surprise it really it's been the big surprise of my career how much I love teaching the big surprise for me was how much I learn about what my own songwriting process is through trying to convey it to them I feel like the act of teaching gives shape and form to the thing that I do that was largely intuitive and largely unexamined, until I had to examine it to present it to my students. So I've learned about things like, oh, this is what I do when I'm lost and I can't figure out what the next verse needs to be, or when I can't find this character's voice, or uh, all these things. I've been able to explore that with my students and figure out, okay, this is the, there is a process that I go through every time. And it's been really gratifying. I love teaching. I'd never imagined that I would be end up doing this, but I love it
1: i know you you do it all over you're in fact you said you were heading to the u k you're doing one in a castle in Aberdeenshire next year. Yes, that's going to be a very special one
0: at the end of May. I normally do my three day workshops in Nashville, but every once in a while a special opportunity like this one comes up. You can't turn that down, but yes, it's gonna be beautiful, and of course, the setting is so evocative. Who knows what'll come up for these students and for me. Do you find that you do a lot of writing yourself on these retreats? I don't always, but I did one of these workshops in a destination. The last time was in 2015 in Tuscany. I assigned an exercise to my students, and it was about detail, actually. We were in this kitchen in this villa where we were staying, and I told them to write a song about what they were seeing and smelling and feeling and everything in the kitchen. And I thought, well, I'll do the exercise myself because I should. And I wrote this lyric out, almost a complete song lyric, tucked it away and didn't look at it for two years. And I pulled it out and realized, oh, my God, this is really a good lyric. And I just put it out on a vinyl single a couple of months ago. So occasionally something pops out of those writing exercises. Even
1: I do have one final question, and this is more of a fun question. I like to ask my interviewees what they're listening to. So back in the day when we had the iPod, what might be the top three most listened to tracks for you right now?
0: Oh, God. I've been listening to, I go back to this album periodically um, every few years and listen to it again and again because I cannot get it out from under my skin. And that's Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. I've been listening to that album A lot lately. There's a band from Ohio that I just adore called Over the Rhine. And they're a husband and wife. They've been at it for a long time and they make exquisite music. I love all their albums, but because of the time of year, I've been listening to their Christmas album, which is, it's not a typical Christmas album. Let me just put it that way. It's very dark and moody and you could listen to it anytime of the year. So I would say Over the Rhine, probably number two. Oh, I've got a new record coming out in May. And frankly, I've been listening to that just to check the mixes and the masters and the press copies, the vinyl. In fact, today I'm going to check out the test pressing of the vinyl version of this. So I've been listening to a lot. It's an album of Mickey Newberry songs. So I have been listening to a lot of Mickey Newberry lately, just because my own versions of his songs. And also I've just been revisiting some of his own versions as well.
1: So your new record is coming out next year,
0: May 2020? It's coming out May 15th. It's called The Night You Wrote That Song. And it is a, an album full of Mickey Newberry songs. He was one of my earliest songwriting heroes. And I'm, I've had this in my mind to do for at least 15 years. And
1: I finally got around to it. That's great. And if anyone wants to check out, your website actually is really detailed. I love how you've got all of your song lyrics there. Yeah, that's important to me. People
0: want to know what the lyrics are. And I'm a lyrics freak. Back in the days of albums, that was the first thing I did was crack the album open and look at the words. So I... I just feel like that's important to me and it must be important to lots of other people too.
1: I'm so glad you do it. I don't think there are enough people that do. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this chat. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Gretchen Peters, isn't she great? I just remember being so blown away by her grace and brilliance. Check out her website. There's so many great things on there. Newsletters, secret songs she gives away monthly, all at GretchenPeters.com. Next time on the podcast, I am going to do a narrative episode about my own story and why I've decided to close the chapter on this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot to me. You can subscribe to The show and check out some of the other 100 episodes or so in the back catalogue. There's actually a follow-up episode I did with Gretchen in August of 2020 where we talk about her Mickey Newbury album and she performs live. I am Stevie Manns. I'll see you next time. Thank you.